he was too young to realise his condition, and when the memory of his mother was not in his mind, he amused us with his pleasant pranks. At night, Ray, Williams and the boy slept in the loft of the shed, while I was locked in the cell. Finally, we were each provided with blankets, such as are used upon horses, the only bedding I was allowed to have for twelve years afterwards. Ray and Williams asked me many questions about New York, how coloured people were treated there, how they could have homes and families of their own, with none to disturb and oppress them, and Ray, especially, sighed continually for freedom. Such conversations, however, were not in the hearing of Birch or the keeper Radburn. Aspirations such as these would have brought down the lash upon our backs. It is necessary in this narrative, in order to present a full and truthful statement of all the principal events in the history of my life and to portray the institution of slavery as I have seen and known it, to speak of well-known places and of many persons who are yet living. I am, and always was, an entire stranger in Washington and its vicinity, aside from Birch and Radburn knowing no man there, except as I have heard of them through my enslaved companions. What I am about to say, if false, can be easily contradicted. I remained in William's slave pen about two weeks. The night previous to my departure, a woman was brought in, weeping bitterly, and leading by the hand a little child. They were Randall's mother and half-sister. On meeting them, he was overjoyed, clinging to her dress, kissing the child, and exhibiting every demonstration of delight. The mother also clasped him in her arms, embraced him tenderly, and gazed at him fondly through her tears, calling him by many an endearing name. Emily, the child, was seven or eight years old, of light complexion, and with a face of admirable beauty. Her hair fell in curls around her neck, while the style and richness of her dress and the neatness of her whole appearance indicated she had been brought up in the midst of wealth. She was a sweet child indeed. The woman also was arrayed in silk, with rings upon her fingers and golden ornaments suspended from her ears. Her air and manners, the correctness and propriety of her language, all showed, evidently, that she had sometimes stood above the common level of a slave. She seemed to be amazed at finding herself in such a place as that. It was plainly a sudden and unexpected turn of fortune that had brought her there. Filling the air with her complainings, she was hustled, with the children and myself, into the cell. Language can convey but an inadequate impression of the lamentations to which she gave incessant utterance. Throwing herself upon the floor and encircling the children in her arms, she poured forth such touching words as only maternal love and kindness can suggest. They nestled closely to her, as if there only was there any safety or protection. At last they slept, their heads resting upon her lap. While they slumbered, she smoothed the hair back from their little foreheads and talked to them all night long. She called them her darlings, her sweet babes, poor innocent things that knew not the misery they were destined to endure. Soon they would have no mother to comfort them. They would be taken from her. What would become of them? Oh, she could not live away from her little Emmy and her dear boy. They had always been good children and had such loving ways. 
It would break her heart, God knew, she said, if they were taken from her. And yet she knew they meant to sell them, and, maybe, they would be separated, and could never see each other any more. It was enough to melt a heart of stone to listen to the pitiful expressions of that desolate and distracted mother. Her name was Eliza, and this was the story of her life as she afterwards related it. She was the slave of Elisha Berry, a rich man living in the neighbourhood of Washington. She was born, I think she said, on his plantation. Years before, he had fallen into dissipated habits and quarrelled with his wife. In fact, soon after the birth of Randall, they separated. Leaving his wife and daughter in the house they had always occupied, he erected a new one nearby, on the estate. Into this house he brought Eliza, and, on condition of her living with him, she and her children were to be emancipated. She resided with him there nine years, with servants to attend upon her, and provided with every comfort and luxury of life. Emily was his child. Finally, her young mistress, who had always remained with her mother at the homestead, married a Mr. Jacob Brooks. At length, for some cause, as I gathered from her relation, beyond Berry's control, a division of his property was made. She and her children fell to the share of Mr. Brooks. During the nine years she had lived with Berry, in consequence of the position she was compelled to occupy, she and Emily had become the object of Mrs. Berry and her daughter's hatred and dislike. Berry himself she represented as a man of naturally a kind heart, who always promised her that she would have her freedom, and who, she had no doubt, would grant it to her then if it were only in his power. As soon as they thus came into the possession and control of the daughter, it became very manifest that they would not live long together. The sight of Eliza seemed to be odious to Mrs. Brooks. Neither could she bear to look upon the child, half-sister and beautiful as she was. The day she was led into the pen, Brooks had brought her from the estate into the city, under pretense that the time had come when her free papers were to be executed, in fulfilment of her master's promise. Elated at the prospect of immediate liberty, she decked herself and little Emmy in their best apparel, and accompanied him with a joyful heart. On their arrival in the city, instead of being baptised into the family of freemen, she was delivered to the trader Birch. The paper that was executed was a bill of sale. The hope of years was blasted in a moment. From the light of most exulting happiness to the utmost depths of wretchedness she had that day descended. No wonder that she wept and filled the pen with wailings and expressions of heart-rending woe. Eliza is now dead. Far up the Red River, where it pours its waters sluggishly through the unhealthy lowlands of Louisiana, she rests in the grave at last, the only resting place of the poor slave. How all her fears were realised, how she mourned day and night and never would be comforted, how, as she predicted, her heart did indeed break with the burden of maternal sorrow will be seen as the narrative proceeds. <laughs>